Well, please open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 21, the 21st chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 21. See if I can hear that beautiful sound of rustling pages. Ooh, that's nice, isn't it? That's nice. Acts chapter 21, or if you're opening your iPhone to that verse. Or your iPad. Are those out yet? That tablet? Yeah. Those don't make as much noise as a page, do they? Keep a pencil handy so you can fill in the blanks that are on the inside flap of your weekend handout. Now, hold your place in your Bibles and let's hold them in the air and let's say the prayer that we always pray as we open to the book of Acts together. Dear Lord, thank you for your wonderful acts. What you did then, would you do again? What you did through them, would you do through us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a favorite uh, seminary professor of mine was Dr. Tom Albright. And Dr. Albright, I remember as a somewhat rotund figure uh, with uh, a uh, nasal tone to his voice and uh, eyes that would dart to the right and left as he would speak. A brilliant professor of New Testament. One day he began a class uh, that consisted of uh, maybe a dozen or so seminary students, and uh, he asked us this one question. No, before he asked the question, he did this. Then I'll tell you the question. He drew a series of concentric circles on the board, just like that. And then he asked the question. He said, what are some of the important topics uh, that you as a church leader need to be prepared to, to discuss uh, as you leave seminary and go out? Uh, what are some of the vital issues? What are the important questions that you need to be prepared uh, to, to, to lead on and, and teach on? Well, you know, preachers are never shy. And so the answers started coming in like a meteor shower. You know, the authority of the Bible, uh, the question of free will, uh, creationism, how old is the earth? I mean, the questions just came one after another. We pretty soon had filled a board with these kind of very uh, important, important questions. But then he asked us this question. Of all of these issues, and again, this is just a sampling. Of all of these issues, which one goes right here? Which one goes in the middle? Which is the topic that's worthy of occupying the center circle. If this is a, a target and you want to hit dead center, what's the one topic that you need to, on which you need to focus? Well, we couldn't agree. We all had different opinions as to what's most important. And we all had reasons that we thought our topic was the most important topic of the church. We all had our reasons. It seems that similar conversation had taken place with the apostles when they were talking about what matters and what doesn't matter or what's priority and what's secondary. And it gave rise to this question that the apostle John asked Jesus. He said, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to force demons out of a person. And we told him to stop 
because he does not belong to our group. The Apostle John had a dilemma. He and the other apostles had seen somebody doing some pretty impressive things. They were, this person was casting out demons. Something that in that very chapter the, the disciples had had trouble doing. He was really doing some impressive things. We read later, we'll find that he was doing these miracles in the name of Christ. So he was doing the right things in the right name with the right power, but there was a problem. What was that problem? That's right, he wasn't one of them. He, he, was, he, was he wasn't from the right group. He wasn't from the right heritage. He was from a different stripe, a, a different circle. And so the disciples did what any able-bodied religious person would do. They kicked him out. They said, we told him to stop. Why? Well, because he doesn't belong to our group. And now John apparently is having second thoughts. He's wondering if he did the right thing. And so he comes and he tells Jesus about this and, and he wonders if he's done the right thing. And, and he's, he's having some honest questions about unity, which gives us an opportunity to come alongside John and, and ask the same question. If you want to follow on your outline, this is the problem of unity. How do we relate to Christians from another group? How do we relate to Christians from another group? When, when people in another group do good deeds in the name of Christ, how do we respond? When you like the fruit, but you've never seen the orchard. When you like the music, but it's a, an unknown band. How do you respond? It's more than a hypothetical question, isn't it? As we dream and think and, and try to reach out to our neighbors, this becomes more and more of a real question. Let's say that you decide that you want to get to know all of your neighbors, so you host a, a barbecue at your house. And lo and behold, the first person who shows up is an Episcopalian. And this person begins talking to you about their vicar and the new robe he wears. Vicar? robe well you scarcely have time to process that before the next person who comes in is a Methodist and the Methodist talks about their new organ and new minister and how well she preaches <laughs> you don't know whether to tell them to leave or stay and then here comes somebody from a Pentecostal background and they get involved in the religious conversation and they ask you if, if you speak in tongues. And then a Baptist walks in and asks you if you are a premillennialist or not. Well, you're really confused. You, you, you don't go to a church where there's a vicar. Or if you do, they got rid of it long before you got there. And he doesn't wear a robe. They don't have an organ. They have rock and roll music sometimes. Uh, you don't know if you've spoken in tongues. You studied Spanish, but you don't know <laughs> if you've spoken in tongues. And you don't know if you're a premillennialist. Premillennialist. You might be. If you are, you didn't register to vote. 
And so what do you do? It can be confusing, can't it? It can be confusing when you at your school see an announcement on the bulletin board inviting all the students to a, to a Bible study. And you show up and there's people, kids from all different backgrounds. What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to behave? When you, when you volunteer for daily bread and, and, and try to feed the hungry in the hill country or volunteer at Haven for Hope and you see that there's folks from the Catholic Church, from the Baptist Church, from the Presbyterian Church, from all kinds of churches. There are all kinds of churches, aren't there? It seems to me when I was growing up, there weren't as many kinds of churches. There were just Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist and Church of Christ. And then all of these other kinds started springing up. My mom used to call them off-brand churches. You know, Tree of Life Church. What is that? And, and Happy Day Church. I mean, you, don't, you, don't, you don't know what's going on you know, behind the sign. And so how are we supposed to behave? Well, I think the Apostle Paul in Acts 21 helps us here, at least in part, answer this question. When we last left Paul last week, he was bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders. And um, Paul's visit with them was brief because his conviction was deep. He was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of the Pentecost, if at all possible. This was the desire that he had, to get to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Pentecost. Now, why would he want to go back to Jerusalem? He's a missionary uh, to the Gentiles. And for over a decade now, he has been uh, helping people all over the Mediterranean Sea. And he's visited and started churches uh, all over the region. Now, why does he want to go back to Jerusalem? Well, he tells us. In Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, he says, I must go down to Jerusalem to take a gift to the Christians there. For you see, the believers in Greece have eagerly taken up offerings for the Christians in Jerusalem who are going through such hard times. So he had a gift he wanted to give the Christians in Jerusalem. He also wanted to extend to them his affection and his love. The first century church demonstrated a wide variety of cultures, skin color, language, ethnic backgrounds, traditions, there were the Jews who still held to some of the traditions of the Torah. There were the Corinthians who most, more than likely had never read the Torah. And so Paul was aware that the first century church was a tinderbox of potential division because they were all so different. And he wanted to do his part to keep everyone unified. So he went on this mission of diplomacy. The assignment was not entirely his idea. Remember to the Ephesian elders he had said, And now I am going to Jerusalem, drawn there irresistibly by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what awaits me except the Holy Spirit has told me, in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. He knows that trouble awaits him. And he's preparing himself for that. They tried to stop him on the way. He stopped at several different cities. And in two of those cities, they tried to convince him not to go. One of the cities was called Tyre, T-Y-R-E. It's in verse 4 of Acts chapter 21. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul wouldn't listen to them. Paul still felt convicted that he needed to go. He travels several days and he reaches a city called Caesarea. Verse 8 of chapter 21, if you'll look there. Leaving the next day, we reach Caesarea. We stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. 
one of the seven. Yeah, we first saw Philip back when he was preaching in Samaria and talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Here he appears again. Skip to verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt and tied his own hand and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So everybody's trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Agabus says, You're going to end up all bound up and placed in jail. The Caesarean disciples urged him to cancel his trip. Even Luke. Paul's traveling companion begged him to unpack his bags in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem. You know why? Because he made unity his priority. He made unity his priority. This is the second point on your outline. That is the power of unity. On the night before his crucifixion, our Savior offered a prayer for unity for you and me and all Christians. He said, I pray for these followers, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me because of their teaching. Father, I pray that they can be one. As you are in me and I am in you, I pray they can be one in us. And then the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus, in his final prayer, prayed for unity. He prayed that the disciples could love each other. Unity matters to God. God does not want His kids to squabble. Why? Well, because all people will know that you are my followers if what? If you love each other. Not if you agree on every doctrine. And not if you behave exactly the same way. Not if you solve every controversy. Not if you're unanimous on each vote. And not if you never make a doctrinal error. But the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you work to get together, to be unified together. In a world that is so rife and striped with division, he's praying that his church would be the place of unity. And so the question comes, if unity matters to God, shouldn't unity matter to us? It certainly mattered to Paul. The trip was long to Jerusalem, but still he went. People tried to convince him not to go, but still he went. And finally, in verses 17 and 18, we see Paul back in Jerusalem. When we arrived at Jerusalem, that's Luke writing there, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Don't let the significance of this moment escape you. This is a dramatic moment. James and Paul represent the two Christianities of their day. James represents the Jewish Christians. We're about to see that there were thousands of them in Jerusalem. And Paul represents the non-Jewish or the Gentile Christians. They live in cities like Ephesus and Corinth and Berea, Rome. They're all over the Mediterranean. And so here the two leaders of the two Christianities stand in a leadership meeting. Picture Billy Graham and the Pope. It's that level of meeting. And they're standing looking at each other face to face. What's about to happen? This is a strategic moment. 
And so Paul reports on the growth of the church among the Gentiles. James reports on the growth of the church among the Jews. And then James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, raises a very touchy issue. Now, stay with me, because this can get complicated, but we'll work through it. <clears throat> I'm picking up again in verse 20 of Acts 21. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. And they have informed, been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. Pause here for just a second. You see, there were many Jews who were Christians and Christians who were still Jewish. They didn't abandon their heritage. Does that make sense? They continued to observe the, the Mosaic teachings with which they had been raised. They observed the Sabbath, they read from the Torah, they kept the dietary restrictions, they honored the festivals. We still have people like this today in the world, don't we? They call themselves Messianic Jews. And they teach the body of Christ much about the beauty and the symbolism of the older covenant. And they still keep the Sabbath and they still read from the Torah. Well, as you can imagine, Christianity was born in the Jewish culture. So there were many people who became followers of Christ but still appreciated their Jewish culture. Well, these people have heard that Paul, the former rabbi, who's been away for a good decade now, has come back into Jerusalem and somebody started some rumors that Paul has completely disregarded the Old Covenant. And that he mocks and, 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 and he disses the teachings of Moses. Now that was not true. Paul had high respect for the teachings of Moses, but he simply did not depend upon the old law for salvation. True, he had become a proclaimer of grace, but he had never become a critic of the Old Testament, Older Testament law. But the word was out that he had. And so James and the elders of the church come to Paul and they suggest a step of conciliation, concession, picking up now in, in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, that you yourself also walk orderly and you keep the law. Now, again, this sounds a little different to us, but what's happening here is we have a group of men who have taken a Nazarite vow. And James says, if you'll align yourself to these, Nazarite, these men, fulfill that vow with them, and at the end of the vow, they'll shave their heads. It's a, it's, a, it's a part of our custom. You actually participate financially in this vow, make an offering in the temple, and this will be a gesture to the Jerusalem Christians that you're not as wild and crazy as people say you are. Now, Paul could have put his foot down right here. He could have said, I'm done with that stuff. That archaic, arcane teaching. I've got that in my rearview mirror. I don't do that kind of stuff any longer. But you know what? He didn't do that. 
And you may be surprised to read in verse 26, Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. In other words, he did it. He did it. Now next week we'll pick up there and we'll see that he gets in trouble. When he gets to the temple, he gets arrested, and then all kinds of things start. But we can pause right here and point out that Paul thought unity was important enough that he would do the small thing in order that he could still do the big thing. The small thing was a custom, a cultural observance. The big thing was the proclamation of Christ. Paul knew how to be flexible with traditions so he could be forceful with the gospel. I believe that this is the path to unity. This is the path to unity. Listen to what Paul thought was worth being forceful about. He said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. You should circle that phrase, first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. According to Paul, what is of first importance? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We understand, don't we, that the Bible is not flat landscape where every teaching is equally important. That certain teachings are more essential than others. The most essential teaching in Scripture, according to Paul, of first importance, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He's going to be forceful there. Not in a mean fashion, but he's just not going to cross the line. He's going to put a boundary around the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and say, I exist to teach this. On this topic, Paul would not budge. He could be forceful with the core, and he could be flexible with everything else. You know, we don't have to see everything the same way. We don't have to agree on every single point. Oh, we don't have to look at everything exactly the same way. What we do need to do, however, is look at Jesus the same way. We agree on the same Savior. We find our common ground, not in common opinions, but we find our common ground at the foot of the cross. If you look at the cross and you see your Redeemer, and I look at the cross and I see my Redeemer, we look at each other and we see family. If you look to God and call Him Father, and you look to Jesus and call Him Savior, then I look to you and I call you brother or sister. And you may not like me, and I may not like you, but that's immaterial. Because we have been born by the same hope, by the same work, by the same Savior, into the same family. My older brother and I didn't always get along. And there were times he didn't want to call me brother. And there were times I didn't want to call him brother. But we didn't get a vote. Because we were born by the same parentage into the same family. And when somebody is born again, they put their trust in Christ. They are born into the same family. Takes us back to that question that John asked Jesus. What do we do about people who are not from our group? 
Remember the question? John said, we told him to stop because he does not belong to our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him because anyone who uses my name to do powerful things will not easily say evil about me. Look what Jesus does here. He tells us how to evaluate people who are not from our group. He says, examine their fruit, examine their faith. Examine their fruit and examine their faith. Do not stop this man. Why? Because he does powerful things. Look at the fruit. And he does powerful things in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at the faith. So look at the fruit. Are they doing good? Are they doing bad? Are they causing unity? Are they causing division? Are they causing people to be fed? Are they causing people to be hurt? And look at the faith. The faith of the people. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. There are many people who do works, not in the name of Christ, but in the name of self. And they advance not the cause of Christ, but the cause of self. And they're trusting for salvation, not the work of Jesus, but the work of self. So look at their faith. And yet at the same time, have we not all discovered there are believers from different backgrounds who place their hope in God's firstborn son and his work on the cross. We find common ground with them at the foot of the cross, right? You mean they don't have to be in my group? No. Or they don't have to share my background? No. Or they don't have to worship in the same way that I do? They don't have to see everything the way that I do? Does anyone? John answered the question best. He said, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God has God living inside, and that person lives in God. As one man said, everybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody who belongs to Jesus. <laughs> you know, we, we can work together. We can work together. We just have to know when to be forceful and when to be flexible. As I've preached over the last quarter of a century, I've seen all kinds of things in churches. And I have found that it's possible to be in union, in communion with people, though their worship style or their opinions are really different. I remember in Brazil preaching at a church when right before I stood to preach, they brought a samba band out and started doing samba dances. And I thought that was strange. But I knew in their hearts they trust Christ for salvation. We don't do samba dances here, I don't think. <laughs> One time I was preaching in Hawaii, and again, right before I stood up to preach, some people came out and did a hula dance. And I thought, I don't think we did that in West Texas where I grew up. But you know what? They trust Christ for salvation. Where my daughter goes to church in, in Waco, Texas, and the college kids, they get up on the front row and they bounce up and down like, like, like jumping beans during the worship. And I tried that. It hurt my back. It's different. But you know what I've learned? It's okay. It's a wonderful expression of God's creative grace. You go to the Christian Hope Resource Center here in San Antonio. And you'll notice that at some point during the Saturday morning distribution of food, there will be a worship service and a mariachi band comes out. Isn't that wonderful? You see, we don't all have to have the same style. We don't all have to have the same opinion. But we do have to agree on the same Savior. We have to know what the big things are. That's why we print the... Uh, doctrinal statement of the Oak Hills Church in our weekend handout every few weeks. We put it in there this week. So you'll know what are the big things 
at Oak Hills. This is not an appeal for us to be naive, to be blind, to blindly accept anybody. It's, a, it's an appeal for us to be more like, like the New Testament Christians who made big things out of the big things and knew when to be flexible on the small things. We have to work together with 26,000, I'm sorry, 26,000 people a day dying of preventable diseases and hunger. We've got to work together. With 3 billion people in our world desperately poor and 1 billion people in our world hungry, we've got to work together. Division is a luxury that we cannot afford. But unity is an opportunity that we, that we cannot miss. You see, Paul said, This I commit unto you as of first importance. And he kept going back to that which was most important. That's what my teacher did. He didn't leave us without an answer as to what goes really in the center of the bullseye. After we had all expressed our opinions toward the end of the class, he read that passage to us from 1 Corinthians 15. And he told us to all circle that phrase, first importance. And he said, look what goes right in the middle. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as long as you keep the big thing the big thing, then there's room for unity and cooperation on the small things. And may God help us to do exactly that.